it is a little different for us. Uh, most of us are used to Palm Sunday, including myself. Palm Sunday is a kind of standalone day in which we really just sort of focus in on that, that entry. That scene of Jesus on the donkey. The palms in the air and the cloaks on the ground. And the, um, the only thing that I think begins to happen there is it's like watching a, um, a boxer walk into the arena. And right as he gets up to the rope, the camera just pulls away. You know, and you assume good things are going to happen, right? You've seen him come down the tunnel and he's wearing whatever he's wearing, he's excited, and he's pumped, he's ready for that moment, but then all of a sudden it just sort of switches. What is the entry for? What's the triumphal entry for? What's so triumphal about it? As Jesus walks in and the people shout, Hosanna. We know that it's the opening scene of something far larger. Luke's gospel is interesting. It's it's the um, I don't know the right adjective. It's the Greekest of the gospels. <laughs> it's the most Hellenistic um, of of the four gospels. Um, it's the one that is written by a guy who knew the Greek world more um, clearly and intimately probably than any of the others. Uh, he tells us right at the beginning of of Luke, and then right at the beginning of his second volume Acts, that he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. And he's writing, it says he went and he did his research. He tells him, I did my homework, I went and I talked to people, I explored and, and investigated these things so I could bring you the real story. And he structures his gospel and his storytelling in such a way that he wants us to see Jesus in a very particular way. The people of Luke's day would have known what it was like to see heroes. Heroes like Socrates, almost mythical heroes at this point. Like Socrates, who, who fought for the truth and who spoke the truth. And Socrates, you'll remember, ends his life in front of the, the sort of people of Athens, the men, the ruling class of Athens, making this great impassioned defense speech, this apology, this, this not apology in the sense of saying sorry, but he's defending who he is, he's defending his teaching. So he stands up and he makes this great and grand speech, and then at the end, he willingly drinks the hemlock tea and commits suicide publicly. Socrates becomes this big martyr who stands for something. He stands for free thinking and, and investigation and all this kind of stuff. That would have been a hero for Luke's audience. We've got these people. We, my, my own family has some connection to a guy named Nathan Hale who you probably read about in like third grade American history um, who was a spy for the American Revolution uh, he, George Washington sent him out uh, to find out where the British were in this island in Manhattan uh, you might have heard of it um, at the time it was just a country little country town but Nathan Hale the spy gets caught and, and, and in getting caught he gets brought to execution, because that's what you do to spies, and he utters the famous last words, my only regret is that I have but one life to live for my country. Right? Nathan Hale dies for an idea. He dies for the idea of a country that doesn't yet exist. It's pretty early in the war, even. It's, it's like, it's not even clear that they're going to win. He's throwing his life 
into this notion of rebellion against tyrants like King George III. Or if you're really kind of super nerdy, <laughs> there's of course the example of Jean-Luc Picard, the captain of the Enterprise in Star Trek Next Generation, who's captured by the Cardassians and tortured by them. They're kind of this alien version of the Nazis. And he's, he's captured and he's tortured, and, and, and one of the captains come in, and he's, the way he's going to break Picard is he's going to prove that he can change his understanding of reality. And so he's got Picard tortured and held, and, and there's four lights up there, and he's trying to get him to say that there's five, because he knows that if he can get him to say there are five lights, now he's cracked his very sense of who he is, right? And so there's this great scene in, in Star Trek of, Picard, there's t-shirts and tattoos and all kinds of stuff out there. Picard saying, there are four lights, right? There are four lights. <laughs> this character who's fighting for an idea, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. I'm willing to throw my body. I'm willing to be tortured and broken and hanged and not even to commit suicide for an idea. Whether that's the idea of truth or the idea of, of a country that doesn't yet exists just patriotism to your people and resistance to tyrants, I'm willing to throw myself into the very wheels of history because these things that are out there, these sort of abstract truths, they matter so much. And so we get these powerful words right at the end of someone's life. Picard makes it through, but that's um, other than that. But Luke's Jesus, Luke's Jesus in his passion, in his suffering, in his facing the enemy, whether that's the, the high priests and, and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews who want to see him killed, whether that's facing Herod, the kind of provincial governor of Galilee, right? He was a sort of Jewish king, but kind of a traitor. He was working with the Romans. Or whether that's facing Pilate, who's an actual Roman and more or less has the power to have him crucified. Jesus doesn't make He doesn't come representing some idea. He doesn't come saying, I'm here to show you truth. Or I'm here to show you patriotism. Or I'm here to show you family values. Or, or I'm here to show you even innocence. On his way to his passion, his suffering, Luke's audience reading this must have been thinking, when's he going to make the speech? When's he going to say the thing? When, when's he going to give his apology? When's he going to give his defense? And he's got four chances. I mean, he's in, he's in the high priest's house, and then he goes to Pilate the first time, and then he goes over to Herod, and then he goes back to Pilate, and all of these times, Jesus is silent. I mean, he gives little answers like, you've said that it's so, right? In other words, you said it, not me. But he doesn't actually ever kind of come to this point where he makes the speech where he refutes their rejection. This is not how martyrs are supposed to die. They're supposed to go out with guns blazing. Right? They're supposed to go out putting it all on the line. 
And Jesus seems, from the perspective of somebody looking for a Greek hero, to die with a whimper. Where Jesus does meet their expectations is that he shows up in the story um, as kind of this philosopher character. Now, not like Socrates in the sense of kind of making this big speech, but, but he's very, he's controlled. Right? Jesus is controlled. If, if you look in the story, in fact, he's the most controlled person in the story. We'll get to that later, but, but he, doesn't, um, he doesn't live with this kind of unrestrained emotion that a Greek or a Roman audience would have found really off-putting. Instead, what we see about the, the sort of philosopher Jesus, the wise man Jesus, is that as he enters into this trial, as he enters into this passion, he comes focused. He's, he's not talking a whole lot, but, but he's doing something. He, he's active even in his silence. And in his silence, he just lets these petty rulers and religious leaders do their worst. He lets the tyrants tyrannize. He lets the tyrants tyrannize. And he lets them tyrannize him. He lets them come after him. He makes himself available. His only words really to them are, why didn't you get me earlier? I was in the temple this whole time. <laughs> and you didn't come arrest me then. What's, what's so special now about the garden? So on the one hand, Jesus is kind of the, the philosopher, the wise man in, in Luke's words, who shows control of himself. right? Who doesn't speak out or, or cry out in pain or fear or sorrow. But on the other hand, Jesus is this kind of, um, not just a philosopher hero, but he's kind of an athlete. He comes and the image of Jesus in the garden is really interesting because he goes into the garden and he prays and then as he's there weeping and sweating and it says sweat like drops of blood are coming down and then what happens but an angel appears to actually encourage him, to support him. But it's like this, coach in his corner who's going, you can do it. He's going to bear him up. You can enter into the arena. I mean, the picture is like of an athlete who goes into the struggle, who goes into the fight, and all of that focus and all of that control all of a sudden has, has an object. It's got something that it's doing. He's not just controlled for its own sake. Now he's in the arena, in the fight. And what is it that Jesus is actually fighting for? Well, we see in the garden, he does not want to die. He's fighting to submit his, all of who he is to the will of the Father. He, he's fighting so that even, even his humanity would want what, God's want what God wants. I mean, how often we dismiss this by saying, well, Jesus is divine. It must have just, I mean, you just do it, right? No, he is in the struggle. He's in the fight. He's suffering. In this. And it's real suffering. It's real loss. It's real pain and real grief. 
Luke's Jesus is, is one of the most human portraits that we get. It's in Luke that we get this really clear picture of Jesus' mother. It's in Luke that we see Jesus, the 12-year-old, go with his parents to Jerusalem and skip out while they're on pilgrimage, vacation, <laughs> and freaking his parents out. Jesus, where were you? You had us worried. You're gone for three days, right? We get this image of Jesus in a family in the Gospel of Luke that we don't really see in other places. And so in some ways, we can connect more clearly with him. And yet we get to this point and the question is, is he going to do it? Is he going to succeed? Is this athlete in the arena actually going to be able to submit himself to this impossible request, to this impossible desire of the Father? That he would allow himself to be crucified, even though it requires bearing falseness. <laughs> even though it requires submitting himself to people who want to kill him. Even though maybe this was the hardest, I don't know. It, it requires allowing people to commit sin against him. Right? Like, yeah, they're violating him, and that's that's hard personally, but here's also the Lord who's watching people. Make him the object of their rebellion against God. And he, even in that, has to submit himself. To lay himself down. To trust that the Father's way is the best way. But there's, there's one other picture. There's philosopher, there's the athlete, there's one other, and it's more Jewish. Luke understands that Jesus isn't just a philosopher, just an athlete who's in this struggle and controlled in himself, but he knows that he's also a prophet. And so multiple times through this reading, we see Jesus speaking truth that no one else will speak. Right? I was so moved by the scene there where Jesus takes Judas's hand. Well, I guess Judas takes Jesus's hand, and then he's kind of forehead to forehead with him. Judas, do you betray? Is it with the kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? He sees right through it. He knows what's happening. There at the moment of his betrayal, he reaches out and heals the slave's ear. Even here, he's still who he is. He's still the healer. He's still the one who restores. He's still the one who redeems. When he's on trial, just as Peter denies him, it says the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And you just get that, they're locking eyes, and Peter knows what he's done, and he knows that the Lord knows what he has done. And to be known in your rebellion, oof, that's hard. He has Herod's men, minions around him, striking him as they put on the crown and the robe and saying, prophesy, prophesy, prophesy. And the irony of that is just everywhere, right? You're striking the prophet, telling him to prophesy. Even the little words that he speaks, you say that I am, have this ring of something. Finally, the most prophetic words to me in this text are when Jesus is walking out of Jerusalem 
cross, I guess it's just been given to Simon, but he, he's beaten down. And he turns and he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Or weep for those who are coming after me. The days are coming when you're going to wish you never had children. The days are going to be so hard. You're going to wish nothing good ever happened to you so you could just turn your life in. That's how bad it's going to be. Because if they do this when the wood is green, what will they do when it's dry? That's, that's a super prophetic moment. <laughs> that Jesus would turn in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his own murder. He's right in the middle of being murdered and, and speak this word to the women who follow him. But if you remember last week, the parable that Jesus tells about the tenants in the vineyard, you remember and you know that the Son of God, the Son of Man, is the one who bears this kind of condensed responsibility for all his people. This is what prophets do. They take their lives and they offer them up to God as this sort of condensation of everything that's going on. And all of the suffering and all of the joy and all of the sorrow and all of the goodness, it all comes down on this one person in some sort of special or unique way. And this is exactly what happens with Jesus. He bears all the hatred and the rejection of the leadership. And in the midst of being hated and rejected, even though he had nothing to offer but good, he exhibits the very qualities of God. And the people who encounter Jesus are changed. I don't think it's in the text, but you saw the choice they made in the video was to have the same centurion feeding him with sour wine as who made the proclamation afterwards. Truly was the Lord. I think of Joseph of Arimathea, the, the, the Pharisee, who didn't consent to Jesus' murder, but who takes his body and lays it in the tomb. I think of the people who came looking for a show to watch somebody be killed, to gawk and to mock, and who leave, Luke tells us, beating their breasts in mourning. This is the kind of thing that a prophet does. When we look at Jesus' suffering, we have to ask that question. Who is in control? In the stories of Socrates and Nathan Hale and Captain Picard, they're potent for us because they use their words to, to kind of get back some sort of control. To get back to when everything's sort of chaotic and wrong, they, with, a, with a speech or with a line or with a poem or a sentence or something, they kind of get back, they get to the heart of what's really going on. But Jesus, in the midst of this, we have to ask, who is it that is actually in control? Because he doesn't have that kind of word that cuts through everything until he's already on the cross. And so you look at the characters and it's like, well, Pilate and Herod, here they are. They're just sort of victims of what's happening politically. They can't even stand up to these guys, the high priests and the leaders who can't get their story straight. Right? Pilate doesn't, neither of them want to crucify him. They have to. 
They feel like they have to. They are slaves to political opinion. The religious leaders can't get their facts straight, but, but they're slaves to the fact that they have to get this guy out of here. They box themselves into a corner that they, they've got to get rid of him because his existence threatens theirs. They have to snuff him out. The people, as the people always do, and I'm a people, but, you know, they keep getting caught up in someone else's scheme here. The only answer is you're looking at this and reading this, who's the freest person in the room? It's Jesus. It's the one in chains. The freest person in the room is the one in chains. Because he is there willingly because he is there following the will of the Father. He's gone to that place out of an understanding that the Lord is the one who's drawing him forward. In the garden, he controls the disciples, holding them back, not letting them attack. Throughout the rest of the story, he controls himself so that even as he is suffering, even as he's dying, what do we see him do? He's prophesying. He's forgiving. He's promising paradise. He's entrusting himself to the Father. In the midst of all of this, Jesus is free to follow the will of God. He's free to do the thing that he knows matters most. Well, our vision of control goes so wrong. You know, we see control as am I making the biggest change? Am I making an impact? What's my legacy? What do I have to pass on to the next generation? How have I changed the world? How have I stuck it to the man or rebelled or however it is that we sort of envision having control and authority over our lives over our neighbors, over our families, over those we care about. But Jesus is victorious in his crucifixion because even though his body is pierced by nails, his soul is not pierced by the desire to hate or for revenge. But he's motivated even then out of love. He's motivated even there out of a heart for the people who are killing him. Satan, you'll remember in the book of Job, comes to God and says, Job loves you because he's got everything. He's got ten kids, which is like maybe too many kids, but you know. Uh, but it's a big blessing, right? He's got ten kids. He's got all of the cattle on 999 hills. He's got all the camels and the donkeys and everything. Job's got it all. Let me take that from him. And he won't love you so much, Lord. The Lord says, okay. And he lets him take all of that stuff from Job in like a night. And then Job still doesn't curse the Lord, so he comes back to me and says, well, he still has his health. Right? So let me take his health from him. So the Lord says, okay, fine. And he lets him 
take his health from him. And Job is literally sitting on a pile of ash, scraping himself with a broken pot because he's covered in boils. His body feels like it's rotting from the inside out. And he doesn't say anything for a week. The sorrow, the loss. But Job, even though he shows up ultimately at the end of the story as righteous, we, we still see and know that Job's got a long way to go. Well, here's the thing. Jesus here is, is like Job, only more so. He's had everything taken from him. Everybody he's ever loved has betrayed him or left him or has no ability to save him. The people that he's come to save and, and to care for and to redeem, they've rejected him and turned him over to the wolves. The world that he created and wanted to see whole has instead chosen to crucify him. He's falsely condemned and abandoned and hated and rejected. But even then, Jesus won't allow hatred or contempt to pierce his soul. He wins the struggle. He's the victorious athlete in the arena because he won't yield. Because all of that pouring down and even bearing the weight of the whole world and the sin of all humanity, it doesn't pierce him. And so Jesus, the crucified, murdered, imprisoned, questioned, falsely condemned, abandoned, hated, rejected, he becomes the freest man in the story. He's freely able to give himself to the Father, to pray for and forgive his persecutors. He lives in no false prisons. He has no false illusions about how to get in, get on in life. So here, if I can dare to apply something, the freedom that we discover in and through Christ is not our ability to be ourselves. It's not our ability to determine our own future and to say, this is who I want to be. We don't become free in the sense of Nobody can tell me what to do. I've got all the money I need. I've got all the friends I need. And I just wake up every day, think, what do I want to do today? And follow that. That might sound like freedom now in your situation. That is a prison. To be a slave to your own desires, to be locked up in what you want to do, that kind of life paralyzes people and shuts them down. No, freedom is the freedom to do what we are created to do. Freedom is the freedom to do where we have been called to go. Do we have the ability in our body, our soul, our mind, our spirit to take the steps that God has laid out ahead of us to do the good works that have been prepared beforehand for us to do? That's freedom. The struggle like Christ, to come into conflict, instead of coming into the conflicts we have in our life, loaded for bear with that great, you know, retort that we thought up last night as we were laying in bed, and we thought, I'm going to come and give it to you. Here I, you know, you got that like tingle in your shoulders. <laughs> come into conflict with silence. 
willing to hear the Lord's will to the person that you're in conflict against. The struggle that we have is like the athlete who steps into the arena to submit ourselves to God. Are you hungry for that? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be hungry for that. I'm working on it. I'm hungry for that like, you know, a couple hours a day. To submit myself fully to God. To let God crucify my flesh. To be willing to go through things that I know are going to be absolutely miserable because I want that resurrection life. Because I know that the life that God will ultimately bring is better than any life I can build for myself. And so I'm going to put myself at the Lord. I want that some of the time. And there's still part of me that needs to die. And so maybe my prayer now, this week, this week especially, that we would kill our flesh. We would allow the circumstances we come up against, the Lord himself crucify our flesh so that we might be raised in him. Maybe the struggle we have is like the prophet to bear responsibility for our people, for our family, not for the whole world, but, but for our church or our immediate neighbors or even just for ourselves to actually say, you know what? I'm going to take responsibility. I don't... I'm going to actually own up to it. It's me, oh Lord, <laughs> standing in the need of prayer. Lord, I need help. And so, so, because I know that I need help, because I know that I've got stuff that needs changed in me, I, I, I'm going to do crazy things like maybe fast a little bit, or stay up a little late to pray, or go to another Christian and say, these are the things that I've done wrong. I need somebody else to see me come to God. And to do all of that without defensiveness, without complaint. Peter, the very one who was outside of that room where Jesus was on trial, who denied him and said, I don't know that guy. That very Peter writes, you know, just a few couple decades later, a few years later, he writes this. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Think about this in terms of the crucifixion. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, those who persecute you, or be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffer. These things that we do, confession, prayer, fasting, 
showing up to worship, evangelizing, compassionate sorts of ministry, all of this, these practices are a part of the intensity of our struggles. Once someone has died to themselves in this way, and like Paul says in Philippians, gone down, down, down with Christ. Once we have intentionally entered into this, once we have kind of on purpose fasted, once we've on purpose allowed ourselves to be reviled, once we've on purpose allowed ourselves to be persecuted, all these kinds of things, right? When we've done all of that, when we've been in the sort of suffering, it's, it's like we've gone through practice, and then one day we wake up and all of a sudden we're in the game. Right? All of a sudden the thing comes and we're not looking for it, and we're not expecting it. All of a sudden we're somehow on trial for real. All of a sudden we don't have access to what we need emotionally or physically for real. And then when we're in that place, it's not so hard because we've already gone there with Jesus. You see what I'm saying? When, when we do this stuff, we, we, we get into this place. And when we're taken there by life and circumstance, it's not such a challenge. But instead, we Christians, we the church, we become the freest people in the world. Not because we have no chains, not because we have no restrictions, not because we don't have to show up to work on Monday morning, but we become the freest people in the world because we've conquered in the greatest struggle. We've conquered in the struggle of our mind and our body, of our soul. Because we've known Christ. We've been in Christ. We're in Him. We can live with zeal and confidence and joy the road ahead. We're cramming a month's worth of worship services into this next week. <laughs> I think it's for Somebody just went, <laughs> but it's for this purpose. So that we can come to the Lord and do it with zeal and confidence and joy. I want to invite you to pray with me and then and we're going to come to this table. It's something we've done hundreds of times together now. But we do it yet again in hope and expectation that as we practice these things, God begins to work them out in us. Not always bringing something new into mind, but deepening the truth that we all already know. I want to lift up this church in thanks and praise, Lord, for the ways that you have been at work among us. God, I pray that we would be a people who are willing to enter the arena with you. That we'd be a people who are eager to step into that space, to trust and to know that you will bear us up, that even in our weakness that there is hope, that even in our death, that there is life. God, as we come to this table, help us to do it in the hope, in the expectation, in the knowledge that you truly are the King. You truly are the Lord. You're the one who saves.